a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and thank you so much for being a part of my growing audience. Hopefully you've come by to pull up a chair, put your feet up, and revel in wrong think. I'm happy to uh, to introduce you to some of the finer points of it, although I'll admit I'm still kind of learning the ropes as I go. Our program is brought to you by Alta Bank Mortgage, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, as well as Monticello College. Quick uh, programming note, coming up in the, the second hour of my show today, I will be visiting with uh, Monticello College president and founder, Dr. Shannon Brooks. He's going to join me to talk about what it means to be liber. There's a word that uh, isn't on everybody's tongue, but once you have heard the definition of liber and you realize the root that it provides to so many common words that uh, that we use, you'll, you'll quickly grasp the importance of why it matters and, and perhaps uh, more than ever in our uh, current uh, climate. Anyway, glad you could join me. If you're just joining us for the first time, you do not have to agree with anything you hear or read associated with this show. There is no requirement. There's no expectation. Nobody needs to fall into ideological lockstep. I'm just asking you to think for yourself and providing some material that uh, that hopefully will provide some different perspectives. What you do with that information, totally up to you. I don't have all the answers but I consider myself a guy who is definitely more committed to finding, seeking, and finding truth than I am to simply clinging to my beliefs and making sure everybody knows that I'm right. So with that in mind, let's, let's dive in here with both feet. When's the last time you were scolded for not taking the pandemic seriously enough? I've kind of seen this back off a little bit here of late. And it's even, even uh, at its worst... I don't feel like I got any real terrible scoldings. No no real, uh, you know, cussing out over, you're not taking this seriously. But it's still kind of a thing. And, and the crazy thing about it is, you know, there are some really strange comparisons being made to keep us alarmed, to keep us, you know, in a state of fear and uncertainty. And, and that's followed up with the question, but, but are, they, are they really, are they necessary? Is it keeping things in perspective, or is this just, you know, hey, you you look like you're running a little bit low on fear. One of the big memes that I found uh, was, was particularly truthful and actually tickled me a bit was uh, early on when the lockdowns took place. Remember when they would tape off playgrounds with uh, crime scene tape? Do not uh, let your children play here. This is a vector for disease and... Anyway, people were actually getting arrested. People were calling the police. Hey, we got people down here having fun at the playground. And and one of the best memes was a uh, Karen uh and and I'm sorry. I I know the I know the the kindest lady. I I have a my my part-time job um in retail. I I I run into a lady named Karen all the time. She is really really sweet. So it's unfair that that unfortunately Karen means a busybody <laughs> with a chip on her shoulder. But there was a picture of a Karen who I think I think the original news story was this Karen had actually called the police because she encountered some people 
black people barbecuing at the local park. There was nothing illegal about it, but something displeased her. And so she did what Karens do, and that is tried to force the issue, tried to impose her will by getting the state involved. And thankfully, the police told her to go pound sand. But somebody took a picture of her on her you know, cell phone trying to call the police. And Yeah, there's, there's people barbecuing at the park. I don't think they're supposed to be doing this. Could you send someone out? Well, they took that and turned it into a meme. Here's Karen on her phone, and, and, and the, the caption says, Hello, I'd like to report some people who aren't living in fear. I'm sorry, but that's, that's still funny no matter how you look at it. What, a, what an interesting attitude. Well, Donald J. Boudreaux, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a terrific essay called Invidious Comparisons. He says, a few days ago, he received an email from a friend who's angry at what he describes as, as Donald Boudreaux's refusal to grasp the full seriousness of the COVID threat. And his friend elaborated, this is a disease that, killed, that has killed more than 400,000 Americans and is continuing to kill more. That's more than 100 times the number of people killed on 9-11. Now, Donald Boudreaux says, my friend, of course, isn't alone in, comparison, in comparing rather the number of deaths attributed to COVID-19 to the number of people, 2,977, who were killed by the 9-11 terrorist attacks. But he says, making this comparison is a common practice among those who wish to sensationalize COVID's deadliness. A similar tactic is to exclaim that the number of people who've died from COVID is equal to the number who would perish if X number of fully passengered up jumbo jets were to fall from the sky where X is frighteningly large, for, for the record. He says the maximum number of passengers that can be carried by a Boeing 747-8 is 467 people. And so, because according to the CDC, as of January 23rd, the number of Americans killed by COVID is 412,592, it's as if the U.S. alone over the last year had 883 packed jumbo jets fatally crash. Can you imagine the headlines if these past 12 months had witnessed such a horrific record of commercial air travel? But he says these comparisons are worse than useless. They create severely distorted impressions that stoke an excessive fear of COVID. Part of the reason is because things are being taken out of context. He says some comparisons suggest that because COVID has killed more people than were killed on 9-11 or that would be killed by some multiple number of jumbo jet crashes, Panic over COVID's lethality is justified. But he says this suggestion is mistaken. And to see why, he says, consider that the CDC estimates estimates rather the number of Americans who died of the flu during the 2019-2020 season was as high as 62,000. Yet no woman clutches her pearls, no man slams down his palm in outrage as she or he, scolding the unenlightened who wish to go about life normally, describes flu deaths as being 21 times the number of people killed on 9-11, or alternatively, the equivalent of 133 jumbo jets all crashing. So his point is, comparisons are helpful when they can provide clarifying context. But comparing the number of COVID deaths to the number of 9-11 deaths or to numerous jumbo jet crashes distorts context. Such comparisons wrongly imply that COVID is more akin to intentionally caused or at least easily avoided dramatic tragedies than it is to more mundane and often avoidable contagious diseases and other sources of death. No serious person denies that COVID is uncommonly lethal for certain segments of the population. 
Yet SARS-CoV-2 is nevertheless an insentient virus much more like seasonal flu than it is like terrorists or a large fleet of negligently piloted or poorly maintained jetliners. He says a second feature of such reckless comparisons is that they cut both ways. They're available to anyone who wishes to mistakenly, misleadingly rather diminish COVID serious. Suppose someone were to point out accurately that the number of Americans so far killed by COVID is only 63% of the number of Americans, roughly 655,000, who die annually of heart disease. And then to conclude from this fact that COVID's nothing to worry about. He asks, would such a comparison render this person's counsel about COVID more credible? Of course not. For the same reason, those people who compare the number of COVID deaths to 9-11's death toll or to the number of people who'd be killed in X number of hypothetical jumbo jet crashes, they don't add credibility to their counsel. In both cases, such comparisons reduce the person's credibility. He says there's nothing in short, nothing about the number of 9-11 fatalities or World War I casualties or of X number of jumbo jet crashes that is relevant for analyzing COVID. Now, he goes through this and makes another comparison. I'm going to let you check this out for yourself. It's in the show notes, which I have published at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are the show notes for January 27th. He says, please, let's stop comparing COVID deaths to 9-11 deaths, to death tolls from hypothetical jetliner crashes, to Vietnam or World War I casualties, or to other non-pathogen-related calamities. Donald J. Boudreau says keeping clear the facts about COVID is difficult enough amidst the ongoing hysteria and willful misinterpretation of life's realities. We don't need to further thicken the fog with invidious comparisons. Marvelous stuff. And again, this is from the American Institute for Economic Research. I want to throw a quick plug their way because you can subscribe for their daily email. And it does come on a daily basis. I think seven days a week I see it land in my email inbox. Always about a half dozen or so different articles. And when it comes to really understanding um, what's going on with COVID, I think they have done an above average job of making sure that they are looking at all sides, not just the, uh, you know, what doctor, what did Dr. Fauci say? Okay, we'll repeat that. You may agree, you may disagree. I'm just saying it's another great resource that could be at your disposal. Sign up for their emails and they'll deliver it right to your inbox. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. If I were wearing a hat, I would tip it right now. Steve, this is to my friend Steve Burgess. He is the uh, owner and founder of, uh, of Landmark uh, Risk Management and Insurance. And, and here's his simple message. If you have commercial insurance, okay, so you're a business owner, yeah, that's among the many things you have to have in order. That can be daunting. And for a lot of people, they, they you know, I think I've got it all taken care of, but there's the key. I think. I'm not sure. So if you have some questions, if you're not sure where you stand, 
this is where Landmark can can help you. So just reach out to Steve at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. The contact information is right there at the bottom of today's show notes under my sponsor links. Click on the one for Landmark. It'll take you right to Steve. You can talk to him. He'll take care of you. By the way, tell him thanks for sponsoring this program. I absolutely appreciate the the sponsors and the patrons, people like you, who uh, who either make a monthly, you know, five dollar donation or whatever it is that they wish to donate to to help keep me focused on what I'm doing, which is hopefully providing you with uh, with content that to get you thinking, provides value, provides provides context, and above all, provides hope. Because our situation is not hopeless. It's interesting and a little bit trying, but it's certainly not hopeless. Let's talk for a minute about minimum wage. There's a lot going on right now. You know, this is one of the first things that uh, President Biden has done, you know, coming into office is, well, we're going to we're going to make it mandatory $15 an hour minimum wage. Now, I'm not clear on whether that's just for federal employees or he wants to do a, a one size fits all federal minimum wage. But I agree with those who say that doesn't make sense. Martha Mjolomol, I hope I'm saying your name correct, Martha. She's writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. That's fee.org. She has a marvelous essay on why that one-size-fits-all federal minimum wage makes zero sense. And in short, it's because it's the simple fact that income levels in most low-cost states just can't support a $15 minimum wage. Here's how she puts it. She says, President Joe Biden's new $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief proposal includes a surprising provision, raising the federal minimum wage to $15. Now, this fight for a higher minimum wage is not new, although it has been intensified by current events. The idea, more specifically, is to provide a living wage. Now, proponents argue that currently minimum wage workers cannot afford basic living expenses. But even if one assumes for the sake of argument that this is true and sets aside the fact that small businesses are already on the brink of collapse, it's impossible to determine one suitable living wage for all parts of a vast and diverse country like the United States. She said, starting January 1st of this year, about 24 states have raised their minimum wage. According to The Economist, even after these uh, 24 states raised their minimum wage, only three states are offering a minimum wage above the state's, quote, living wage. Now, living wage in this case is defined as a theoretical income level in 2020 that allows an individual to afford adequate shelter, food, and other basic necessities. And she's got a nice chart here, by the way, that, uh, that shows each of these states and, you know, Talks, uh, talks about what things were like pre-2021, what things are like today, where the living wage is. Great visual context for those of you who are visual learners. She says, one important trend here is that out of the 24 states, only three states, New York, California, and Massachusetts, require a living wage of $15 or higher. In the rest of the country, the living wage is actually less than $15 an hour. Additionally, the gap between states is staggering. Take, for instance, Arkansas and New York. Arkansas has a living wage of between $10 and $11 per hour. New York, on the other hand, has a living wage of $15 and $16 per hour. Now, this is not surprising considering the fact that living in New York is much more expensive than living in Arkansas. But it does make it hard to imagine any good reason the two states should have the same minimum wage. 
What would happen if Arkansas businesses were forced to offer the same level of wages as businesses in New York? Businesses in Arkansas would see their labor costs relative to levels of income rise significantly, a larger increase than New York businesses would face. And that means Arkansas businesses would have to offset this rise in costs. Now, to the extent they can, they'll raise the prices of goods and pass those costs on to customers. But it's more likely that businesses in states like Arkansas will be forced to cut jobs or reduce the hours of workers, and likely at a higher margin compared to high-income, high-cost states. It's a simple fact that income levels in most low-cost states cannot support a $15 minimum wage. Now, the American Enterprise Institute calculated what a $15 federal minimum wage effectively amounts to in each state. And by indexing each state to D.C.'s cost of living, which, by the way, happens to be the highest in the nation, a $15 minimum wage translates to a remarkably higher wage in most states. So in low-income, low low-cost states like Alabama, a $15 minimum wage had an effective value of $20. And I love the map that she includes here. I'm just looking around, and uh, yeah, most of them are going to be closer to $20. It's funny, California, it's actually $15.76. Maine, you know, $18.25. My home state of Utah, $18.26. What it means is the cost of raising the federal minimum wage will be more pronounced in those low-cost states compared to those of high-cost states. But she points out, even at the state level, large differences exist between local regions. For instance, most states uh, living in metropolitan or big cities is more expensive compared to living in rural areas. So when we talk about averages, state living wage figures tend to skew those differences in local living costs. So while a state like Minnesota requires a $12 per hour living wage, that number fluctuates depending on the specific area you choose to look at. According to data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, for example, Minnesota, Hennepin County in 2019 had the state's highest per capita personal income at $76,552. That's more than twice as much as the county with the lowest per capita personal income. Now, these regions certainly should not be subjected to the same minimum wage level, and neither should New York City and the rest of New York State. In 2019, New York City had an average income per person of $197,847. Yet New York State's average per capita personal income is about $72,000. Additionally, the state has just uh, has about 39 counties with income below $50,000 and 23 with incomes above $50,000. So what's the takeaway here? It's that one-size-fits-all policies don't work. If there's one thing economics can teach us, she says, that's what it is. Why? Because such policies assume that all human beings have, on average, the same preferences, same opportunity costs, similar similar level of skill, and the same dedication to achieving their goals. However, even minimum wage workers are very diverse. The minimum wage workforce is made up of young teenagers that want to do part-time work to gain experience, Entry workers that happen to be on their way to climbing up the economic ladder. Workers that, for various reasons, prefer to work part-time. Low-skilled individuals who are, for lack of a better word, unluckily stuck in low-paying, less productive sectors of the economy. For some reason, this last group is always the one used as a base for what should be done. 
But she says data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics show that minimum wage workforce is mostly made up of young, less educated, part-time workers who are less likely to be married or have a family. Furthermore, the population of workers earning the minimum wage is very small compared to the total workforce and has been shrinking. And these are groups of people that can't be lumped together. And what helps one group does not especially help the other. we got to pause here for a moment, so we will. When we come back, we'll finish up this article. Why a one-size-fits-all federal minimum wage makes zero sense. That doesn't mean you're turning your back on the people who may be, you know, struggling to make ends meet. It's just facing a reality that this particular brand of government help doesn't really seem to be helping. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am sharing with you a remarkable essay by Martha... I'm probably mispronouncing Martha's last name, but I I love her take on uh, the federal minimum wage. She's an economist at the Center of the American Experiment. And uh, she is, I think she's right on the money here when she talks about how the problem with, with the minimum wage law, especially a federal $15 minimum wage law, is that it, it tends to focus on the people who are stuck in low-paying, less productive sectors of the economy and doesn't take into account that the minimum wage workforce includes a lot of other people. She says older, low-skilled workers, for example, you know, could potentially benefit more from training initiatives that help close the skills gap so they can be paired up with better-paying jobs. They can furthermore be helped by loosening laws that restrict entry into lucrative occupations, and young workers, on the other hand, could be helped if the minimum wage was lowered or even abolished, and so would small business. There are countless fundamental differences within our economy that a one-size-fits-all federal minimum wage can never take into account. I think, the, to me, the, the worst part about uh, <clears throat> mandating, well, you businesses, you need, you need to pay your employees more, pay them that living wage. That's just, that's coercion because the state is the one that's mandating it, and they'll be punished if they don't, right? That coercion doesn't take into account what the job is worth. And I know it's painful to hear this. It hurt my feelings the first time I heard this, and yet I still believe this to be absolutely true. Some jobs simply aren't worth whatever the minimum wage happens to be. In other words, and and I'm going to bring it right home. I remember, uh, you know, early on in my radio career that uh, I was commiserating with a number of other co-workers, small market radio, which, look, radio's not a great paying job, even under great circumstances. You know, for, for every Howard Stern out there, there are millions of struggling radio personalities who, uh, you know, yeah, they're, they're not going to see a six-figure income. It's just not in the cards. But especially in small market radio, I mean, you know, there was a time where, you know, the attitude was, you know, the job pays five bucks an hour. Take it or leave it. By the way, I don't, I don't even know if the minimum wage was five bucks. Maybe it was five bucks an hour. And I remember the owner of one of our stations 
you know, coming out one time and talking about uh, how he, I think this was this was back in probably oh I'm going to say the early '90s, and there was a push then. We got to raise the minimum wage, raise the minimum wage. And I mean, look, the the station owner was notoriously tight. I mean, he was he he knew how to pinch a penny. But he said, you know, the the problem here is he says some of these jobs simply aren't worth five bucks an hour, and I I have to agree. If somebody was just coming in and pushing buttons, it doesn't take a lot of skill. Now, people who did it with attention to detail and with purpose and who learned and, and gained other skills and, and perhaps learned how to edit audio and learned how to, uh, to interact on the air and to, to you know, carry a, a show as a personality or to even co-host or you know, to provide you know, commentary during sports broadcasts or whatever, um, they, were, they were able to move up the chain. I mean, they still weren't getting rich, but they were definitely getting paid more because they were creating greater value for the station. And I remember it stung the first time I heard him say, well, you know, some of these jobs really aren't even worth five bucks an hour. And it's true. I mean, I didn't, ha- I didn't, I didn't want to agree, but looking back on it now, I'm like, yeah, he, he was right. He wasn't just, you know, stingy, <laughs> which is what we were kind of attributing it to. So when you force a business owner to increase those costs, more often than not, what you're going to get is you're going to get a reduction in workforce, reduction in hours, less opportunity for the people who are trying to find their way, you know, up the ladder, so to speak. And this is the point that I think a lot of us tend to forget. And, and it may sound like tough love and it may sound like, well, yeah, this is easy for you to say, you know, from your ivory tower. Trust me, I'm not coming to you from an ivory tower. I'm, I'm a guy who, I, I do what it takes to make ends meet. Sometimes that means I'm standing behind the counter of a convenience store selling beer and cigarettes. And I, you know what? It is what it is. <laughs> that's, if that's what it takes, that's what I'm going to have to do. But it's all about the value that you bring to a company. A, a, an entry-level job. I'm, I'm using that term instead of minimum wage. A job where someone is getting their first entry into the workforce is usually going to be a low-skilled job. In other words, it's, it's something that pretty much anybody can do. And I don't mean to be insulting for anybody who's working entry-level jobs, because, again, I'm doing the same thing myself. But it's, it's you know, that's, that's just part of, a, of, of keeping things going, you know, during a time where, you know, economically there's, there's a fair bit of uncertainty. But an entry-level job was never meant to be, yes, this is where you shall land and this is where you shall stay forever and ever. And by the way, even in entry-level jobs, and I'm just going to use like, you know, in, in, in the convenience store industry, there is ample room for people to move up. There are great opportunities for people who are willing to learn managerial skills and marketing skills. And, you know, there's, there's, a, first, there's so much more work. <laughs> it's so much more than simply standing there ringing people up. But... The more people are willing to learn above whatever they're doing at the moment, gaining skills, creating greater value, the more they get paid. And so I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm spitballing, but I'm thinking, you know, like, for instance, assistant managers, shift managers, you know, I think they can make, you know, 18, 19 bucks an hour, which, you know, for some people, they turn their nose up. Well, <laughs> But certainly not as much as Biff and Tad and the rest of the fellows at the country club are making, but that's nothing to sneeze at. 
If you're trying to uh, if you're trying to earn honest money rather than sit back and wait for a check to come, you know that's that's decent money. And yeah, it requires work. I mean, the the starting wage is about eleven bucks an hour, but it's work. It's hard physically. There's a lot you have to do, and that's okay. The idea is entry-level jobs are supposed to be where you gain your toehold and you're supposed to apply yourself, better yourself, develop the skills, develop your ability to produce more. The person who has the attitude of, huh, they don't pay me enough to do that. That's the person who's going to stagnate. That's an entitled sense of, of, you know, well, this is what I'm owed. Simply for the, you know, because I I grace you with my presence every day. I show up and I clock in and you pay me for it. But the person who's actually serious about, no, I want to work hard. I want to create value. I want my employer to see that their money is being well spent. And I know I can't say this about all employers. There are some out there that are are really stingy, that that are true skin flints. Most employers, though, when they see initiative on the part of an employee... Recognize it, welcome it, and realize it can make their job easier, you know, as they promote. I guess the bottom line is, number one, don't turn your nose up at people in in, in minimum wage jobs. Everybody's doing what they can. But at the same time, let's not pretend that we can substitute government judgment and government force, you know, for, you know, what what actually needs to take place in, in the marketplace. People who create greater value will command, you know, a higher wage. And I, and I want to sing the, the praises of the business owner, you know, at the same time. Too often, you know, I've heard people say, well, I just think it's sickening that these business owners, they can live in their fancy home and they drive nice new cars and their employees are just barely getting by. And on, you know, at first blush, wow, that's sure enough, that's what it looks like. You know, here's the boss pulling up in an Escalade and, you know, the uh, the employee is still driving an old ratty, you know, Saturn that, you know, is barely running. But it doesn't take into account, what did it take to, to launch that business in the first place? Who earned the capital? Who came up with the capital? Who put the risk out there on the line to create a business? And if you're a small business owner, you, you're probably nodding your head going, dang right. Small business owners don't have the luxury of working a 40-hour week and then sitting back and just, yeah, you know, collecting the bags of money that are being dropped off by a Brinks truck. You know how many hours a week a small business owner works if they want to be successful? As many as it takes. <laughs> I love that. And that was told to me by a small business owner who was in the midst of that, uh, that paying the dues phase of getting his business off the ground. Be grateful for those who provide opportunities. Uh, for those who have, have started businesses, I know they're grateful for those who show initiative and a willingness to create greater value than what they're being paid. People like that do not stay in minimum wage positions. So instead of focusing your anger on, well, these people, you know, making money in their business, how dare they do that? Don't bite the hand that feeds you. Recognize that uh, they're providing opportunity. And if you're using that opportunity wisely, you are improving yourself, making yourself more marketable and more valuable. All right. Thus endeth my sermon on minimum wage. I feel better if nothing else. Thank you for sticking around. We'll be back in just a moment. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. Final segment of the hour. By the way, our program brought to you in part today by Alta Bank. That would be my friend John Staples. He is a mortgage lender and a darn fine one. He's been at this for a while. He has the resources available to my friends who are listening within uh, the sound of my voice in the state of Utah. If you've been thinking about uh, refinancing your existing mortgage, maybe, maybe you're looking for a new home loan. All I can tell you is the interest rates right now are ridiculously low. And if you would reach out to John, you can do so by following the links, which I happily provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Just uh, check out the links, and uh, they will put you in touch with John at Alta Bank. Tell him thank you for being a sponsor of this program. So it's, it's so interesting to see that in our nation's highly politicized atmosphere right now, um, there's, there's a lot of concern about, uh, you know, where we are going as a country. But I think that the deepest concern I'm feeling right now is what's happening in the minds of the people, the political class, particularly those who occupy Washington, D.C. You know, the, the uh, unrest earlier this month at the U.S. Capitol, I'm not quite to the point of calling it an insurrection. But then again, I'm not caught up in the, the political soap opera either. But they talk about this as well. You know, we this is the most grave danger we faced. And, and there is a very concerted effort to take the war on terror. Yes, the one that we have been using to destabilize. I'm sorry, that our government has been using to destabilize and, and create havoc around the world. Just look up, the, look up when you have the inclination. The number of innocent people killed by American drone strikes. Collateral damage to U.S. drone strikes. And tell me that it's easy to shrug off. Well, you know, they shouldn't have chose to live in a war zone or whatever, you know, excuse or deflection you may want to throw at it. It's scary. And the same people who have been prosecuting that and thinking, no, 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 this is a good thing. This is this is how we we enforce our policy want to bring that home. Now, thankfully, there are a few voices of reason out there. Former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard is actually one of the most welcome voices of reason in this disturbing trend. Listen to the comments she had to make to Fox News regarding these proposed domestic terrorism laws and how they directly undermine the Constitution, how they directly undermine the limits on government power and target run-of-the-mill Trump supporters and right-wingers as potential terrorists. Former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii, Democrat, joins us now. Congresswoman, great to see you. Uh, I know you just you been too, out of the Brian. job for a week or two. Are you surprised they're pushing forward with this uh, extra surveillance on would-be domestic terror? Uh, it's so dangerous. You know, as you guys have been talking about, this is an issue that all Democrats, Republicans, independents, libertarians should be extremely concerned about, uh, especially because we don't have to guess about where this goes or how this ends. When you have people like former CIA director John Brennan openly talking about how he's spoken with um, or heard from appointees and nominees in the Biden administration who are already starting to look across our country uh, for these types of movements similar to the insurgencies they've seen overseas that, in his words, he says, make up this unholy alliance of 
religious extremists, uh, racists, bigots. Uh, he lists a few others and adds at the end, even libertarians. So when you look at their process and they start looking at, okay, how do, what characteristics right. are we looking for as we're building this profile of a potential extremist, uh, what are we talking about? A religious extremist, are we talking about uh, Christians, evangelical Christians? What is, an, what is a religious extremist? Is it somebody who's pro-life? I mean, what, where, do you, where do you take this? Uh, you start looking at, okay, well, obviously you have to be a white person, obviously likely male, libertarians, well, if anybody who loves freedom, liberty, maybe has an American flag outside their house, or uh, people who, you know, attended a Trump rally. Uh, once you start walking this down the path, you see where it leads to a very dangerous undermining of our civil liberties, mm -hmm. our freedoms in our Constitution, and a targeting of almost half of the country. Ewan Omar says this, um, we already have laws on the books, sorry, but you are just going to have to learn to apply them. The other thing I thought was interesting, uh, Congresswoman, I don't see any FBI demanding more tools. They feel they got no. the tools. These are, these are uh, congressional leaders or members who feel as though they're so, uh, uh, they're so freaked out by Trump supporters, they still can't understand why anyone would support him. They want to get to the bottom of it. And do you think the whole deprogramming of Trump supporters, this new buzzword, among uh, detractors and Democrats has anything to do with this? Uh, yeah, I, I think it does very directly. I, I think just on the FBI front, I read a great op-ed this morning from a former FBI agent who made a very strong case for why this new uh, domestic terror law introduced by Adam Schiff is wrong and, and is, is directly going to undermine our, our constitutional rights and freedoms. Um, this whole effort, whether you're talking about this bill or people saying that we have to deprogram these, these Trump cultists and people who voted for Trump because they've been radicalized, all of this just goes to further mm -hmm. tear our country apart. And it moves towards the thing Joe Biden said in his inauguration speech that, that he shouldn't happen, which is a dehumanization right. of your opponent. And that's where his voice is so necessary right now. He is right. the president of this country. He delivered this speech, his voice, himself, speaking to the American people. He needs to denounce people like John Brennan and their statements, bills like the one Adam Schiff put forward, and truly speak to the American people about how we must come right. together around you know, the Constitution, around our Bill of Rights, around these rights that have been endowed to us by our Creator. If Amen. Okay, I'm going to stop it there, but I, I have a link to the to the article here. This is from Big League Politics and a link to the video as well. <sighs> I know that uh, this is one where, where a lot of times people are going to want to, you know, sit back and um, just, uh, well, you know, if I just keep my head down or don't bring attention to myself, everything's going to be cool. I, this is one that uh, please keep an eye on. Don't obsess over it. Don't drive yourself, you know, to fear from it. But understand that uh, that's a that's a very dangerous mindset. And and I think this is going to come down. This is just you know this Brian's prediction with with my limited amount of knowledge. I think you're probably going to see. I think the fear at the at the federal level and and among the uh, the the various Congress people is such that they are going to pursue this. I think they're they're going to do it and, and say, well, it's a necessity. We have to do it. Kind of like the whole war on terror was a necessity, and we have to do it. No time to think. We just got to act. And I think it's going to come down to the states. 
maybe even some of the localities, counties, etc., are going to have to stand up and interpose themselves between the federal government and their citizens. This could get interesting. I mean, it's, you know, I, I see it heading in a very creepy direction, not necessarily from the, you know, idea, well, we're going to have drone strikes right here on American soil, but I do have to point out in all fairness, right now, your government claims the power to do that. Oh, you didn't know this? Yeah, you know, under the Patriot Act, under the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, yeah, they claim the power to, you know, extrajudicially take out threats to national security anywhere in the world, including on American soil. Woof. That is not a pleasant thought. So be aware. Focus your efforts maybe more on on connecting with your local leadership and from there you know the the local leaders can can put pressure on state officials but i think it's going to come down to the the states and and sometimes the localities and counties may have to interpose themselves all right that said one final note here i'm not going to have time to share the whole article but there's a terrific essay from jeff minnick on intellectualtakeout.org this is another this is another resource that i strongly recommend for anybody who is is ready to get down to some serious wrong think intellectual takeout has just a, a great variety of writers and and topics this one is called the disappearance of average joe and Jeff Minnick talks about uh, the, the average Joe who has been made invisible. By the way, average Josephine, too, he says, for that matter. And he asks the question, and I think this is a fair one, who today really speaks for the barber in Weaverville, North Carolina, who just spent eight hours on his feet clipping away and calculating how many heads of hair he has to cut to send his daughter to college in five years? Who speaks for that woman from Southside Chicago who works full-time while raising two sons, arriving back at the apartment late in the afternoon, to make supper for the boys before sitting them down to do their homework. Yeah, no names really come to mind, do they? Which politicians or talking heads really even cared when coronavirus lockdowns permanently closed bowling alleys, movie theaters, or restaurants? I'll let you sort out the rest of this article for yourself. Again, this is from Jeff Minnick from intellectualtakeout.org. The Disappearance of Average Joe. Who really keeps our country up and running? He does have this thought here from Emerson. Men are respectable only as they respect. Something he says those governing our country might now may want to bear in mind. This is The Brian Hyde Show.